Welcome to Business Resilience Decoded. From Disaster Recovery Journal and Asphalus Advisors. Now, here's your host, Vanessa Vaughn Matthews. Welcome to Business Resilience Decoded. I am your host, Vanessa Vaughn Matthews, the founder and chief resilience officer of Asphalus Advisors. We have an accomplished guest lined up for you today speaking on the topic of resiliency in higher education. Let's jump right in and meet our guest, Melanie Lutt, the Chief Resilience Officer of Carnegie Mellon University. Melanie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So can you tell our listeners how you got into the world of risk? Uh, it's an interesting story, as I'm sure all of us have. <laughs> um, but I actually started out trained as an underwriter, a personal lines underwriter. And I think that experience alone really changed my thought process and thinking in terms of risk decision, risk informed decision making. And from there, I went on to go into a career of business continuity, working for a medical device manufacturer, and then on to a uh, into a banking institution, and then fell into higher education. And so it's, you know, as I'm sure with all of our careers, it's a bit of a journey and where you end up is nowhere near where you thought you were going to be in the beginning, but it's been an amazing journey. So what did you do in financial services? So I was a part of a team uh, managing business resiliency and developing business continuity plans uh, for all the different business areas within, within the bank. And that really helped to then uh, propel me into to what I'm doing now, which is um, as the chief risk officer of the university, I oversee uh, both business continuity and disaster recovery, as well as a few other areas. So how do you see your background with the medical devices company and financial services how are you leveraging those backgrounds in this role now? Yeah, it, it really is uniquely positioning me to think outside of the box more often uh, and to really be very strategic. Whether you are conducting business continuity in a manufacturing business or in financial services or in higher education, we really look at it from, from the same lens of that all-hazard approach that if we can't do the things that we normally do on a daily basis, what is that plan B? That plan B will be something completely different for each respective industry, but the approach and the methodology is really very much the same. We are at DRJ Fall 2019 in Phoenix, but you actually are presenting at the conference this year. I am. And what's your topic about? So it's really about bringing everything together under an enterprise risk management organizational structure that really addresses organizational resiliency, whether it's emergency preparedness, whether it's looking at risk strategically as an enterprise organization, or business continuity and disaster recovery, I've had a really unique and, and fortunate opportunity to really shape our organization at the university that can bring all of these things together and really look holistically at the university from the position of organizational resilience. Through that experience, uh, we've been able to break down silos. We've been able to streamline much of our processes and really find um, a lot of efficiencies that, at least from our experience, we thought would be um, worth sharing with others. So prior to your role as the CRO for Carnegie, was risk resiliency, was that in place or did you have to build it? So there were pieces of it that were in place. Um, and really the, 
the purpose of my coming into the university originally was to launch a sustainable business continuity program. And I think through, through that strategic rollout over the past few years, we've been able to kind of bring those linkages between emergency preparedness, business continuity together, and how that rolls up under an enterprise risk management umbrella that really looks at the university from the perspective of our resiliency and how can we be proactive in managing risk and not reacting in times of crisis. Yes. So I think it's 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 interesting that you were brought on to build a sustainable BC program, which tells me that someone at your level from a leadership visionary standpoint saw the need in that. Can you tell us a little bit about why? Yeah, <laughs> that is a great question. I'm again, I'm very fortunate because um, I'm a part of a university that values resiliency, that sees the importance of it, and that has invested in the successful outcome of, a, of an organization resiliency program. Um, Carnegie Mellon uh, was really the university that wrote the book on resiliency, you know, the resiliency management model. So we were able to leverage what was being taught and operationalize it to demonstrate its value. So yeah, it's been um, really a fortunate experience. So in your description of resiliency in higher education and, you know, and, and, and how you've bridged emergency management risk etc. You talked a little bit about benchmarking. Yes. So I want to ask you for our listeners to better understand how do you benchmark? So I think higher education is a little bit different because um, the environment fosters collaboration and really encourages it. We benchmark with several other peer universities um, in the country, MIT, Harvard, uh, Yale. And one of the things in a higher education environment is that it really promotes that open collaboration for the purpose of learning and uh, collaboration and best practices. And so, you know, as opposed to other types of industries that might be somewhat more reserved in those benchmarking techniques, um, higher education is the exact opposite. Uh, people are very open, they're very willing to share because we all face very similar challenges. And if someone's figured something out, well, then that's worth sharing. So is it as simple as, hey, I call, you know, a friend at MIT and we just sit and chat or, you know, what's, how do you physically do that? Yeah, so there's several um, opportunities that we're able to take advantage of. It, it could be something very similar as what you've described, the one-on-one -on -one interaction. There are also uh, peer groups that will get together periodically to share their wins, you know, commiserate on their challenges. Um, we do that both, you know, physically and both virtually. We um, are on several distribution lists where if someone has a question, they send it out and they might get 30 different responses. So it's a very supportive, um, very um, collaborative type of, of a group. So how does resilience and risk align from your perspective. And the reason why I ask is every time I do anything, I hear resilience, resilience, resilience. And, and then, you know, some, some folks say, well, it's really about risk management. And some folks say, well, it's really about resilience. So from your perspective, how do they align? I think they go hand in hand because I think being more resilient, so being proactive, um, I, being open to identifying the potential risks, both good and bad, um, ahead of time. It's, we call it risk sensing, um, where we're thinking, you know, not just within our own silos, but what are the things that could potentially impact us and what is it that we want to do about it? You know, what should we be worried about? How can we 
mitigate those risks ahead of time, that in and of itself strengthens our resiliency. Um, it better prepares us to respond. And that response can demonstrate our resiliency or it can demonstrate our lack of preparedness. And so, you know, those are kind of the cycles that, that we go through. And we've been able to show time and time again that being prepared and thinking in a way that doesn't force you to respond, or you've given yourself the space and the time to think something through in a very collaborative and thoughtful way, really positions you um, in a much better way during um, a disruptive event. And people will see that you've taken the time to be prepared and to be thoughtful. And I can imagine that not only your students appreciate that, but the alumni appreciate that. You and have... parents appreciate that. <laughs> mm -hmm. And parents, mm -hmm. and um, you know, you guys are regulated too, in a sense, right? You have to keep your, your standards, right? Yes. And then you have employers that you partner with too. So I, I think you, you, you have a, a lot of stakeholders. There's a tremendous amount of stakeholders and, and there's com the community as well. Um, you know, we have uh, an obligation to make sure that we're providing a safe and healthy environment for not only our students, faculty and staff, but the surrounding community. And, and so we take that very seriously and, and make that, you know, one of our key strategic objectives. Awesome. So this next question I, I think is pretty interesting um, in terms of how do colleges stay relevant mm -hmm. and continuously show their value? And, and so why I wanted to ask you this as the chief risk officer um, is, you know, I think colleges right now are having to manage risk from the from their reputation. Right. Yeah. So in our country, in the United States, you know, some would say that we spend a lot of money on higher education and some would say that, you know, there's a percentage of folks that may or may not graduate and then necessarily see that ROI in mm -hmm. X timeframe. And so just want to get from your perspective when when I assume that you guys have these types of conversations from a leadership you know, standpoint. But how do colleges stay relevant mm -hmm. from that perspective? Well, I. I can speak from my own experience that I think, you know, it's it's colleges and universities that are creating the groundbreaking research, the innovation, the discoveries that help to change the world. If it wasn't for the research and for, you know, giving our faculty and researchers the time and space to be able to discover that the next best thing, you know, the world would not be where we are today. Yeah. And I think, you know, that investment um, in the talent of our students and our faculty is really important. Um, and, you know, no two colleges may be the same, but I think the investment in, in oneself in terms of their education and how they can apply that education to help change the world for the better, I, I think really demonstrates the value of, of a college experience. Actually, I think that's really resiliency. That is resiliency. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so, thinking about the college scandal yes. that has happened, and you know, folks, if you keep up with the news or if you just Google college scandal, because mm -hmm. Google knows everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, how has the college scandal that has happened at other major, um, high-profile universities across the country, how has this changed your risk posture or mm -hmm. the approach that you guys are taking? So I, I think it, it changes it in a couple of ways, um, but at the same time, it, it stays very much the same. I think it really continues to reinforce why we can't let our foot up off of the gas of risk management. I think it demonstrates the value of risk management. 
you know, we can think of so many different scenarios that could potentially impact us and something will happen out of left field that you never would have anticipated, which is why I think that all hazard approach is so important. You have to be ready for anything. And I think the importance of risk management also applies to why we continue to reinforce strong work ethics. We want to have uh, people within our community that um, have the best of intentions, and we have to ensure that we have effective controls in place to make sure that we're all doing our due diligence. So I think that it, it shows the partnership also between not only risk management, but an effective internal audit function, mm -hmm. um, kind of that three lines of defense structure where you've got the folks that, that do the good work every day, day in and day out, they're that first line of defense. And, and they're the ones that are helping to keep us sound, keep us resilient. Yeah. Um, but, you know, risk is that second line of defense where we want to make sure that, that those controls are in place. And then audit is the third. So I think having that well-rounded structure helps to, to maintain that resiliency. But again, you know, things will happen. We can't be blind to that. And so then that's where things like emergency preparedness and business continuity come into play in crisis management as well, that when those disruptions do occur, how, how quickly we respond to them, how thoughtfully we respond to them, so that at least um, our colleagues and our community see that we're on this, we got it, and we're going to fix it. I'm just curious, how, it, how is your risk management department structured? Mm -hmm. at Sure. So um, enterprise risk management really oversees um, a, a few key areas, um, environmental health and safety, which is um, critically important um, given our research footprint, uh, business continuity, disaster recovery, emergency preparedness, and then the program of enterprise risk management. That really rolls up under enterprise risk management organization, and I report to the vice president for operations of the university. Um, which he has a, a significantly wide footprint as well. It's been very, very great because the reach that we have um, is very helpful in being effective with, with our jobs. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I, I love the fact that you guys tie into the operations because I personally am an advocate that the operation is what we're here to protect. Yep. And yes. having a really good eye into risk and resiliency and everything else that you guys cover. And then for you guys to reciprocate and to really have a better understanding of the operation, I think is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's again, I think, and it's been, you know, the vision of our executive management team, you know, they um, were very thoughtful in how they wanted this to be structured. And I think that, you know, we're, we're reaping the rewards of that um, as we continue to execute our own strategic objectives. Awesome. So just a couple of questions that I'm going to fireball at you so our listeners can get to know you a little bit more. What do you like to do for fun? Oh, my gosh. I am a, a binge watcher. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love to um, spend a Sunday afternoon um, when I can and just watching... <laughs> British television, uh, binge watch British television. So I'm a, a total Downton Abbey fan, a total Call the Midwife fan. Um, that's I'm I'm what you would call a probably an Anglophile. Uh, so I yeah, there's a fun fact for you. <laughs> and why British? Well, you know what? It's interesting. Um, so I did the whole ancestry DNA thing, and uh, it turns out I'm 52% British. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah, but that was kind of like a happy accident. Ever since I was a kid, I just gravitate. Like, I loved Duran Duran when I was a kid, and my dad loved the Beatles. And so we just kind of gravitated towards, you know, British pop culture. And so, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite food? My favorite food, you know what? It's interesting. I love Greek food, and it's only been recently that I really started to gravitate towards it. I, it's discovering something new. Yeah. And so like the stuffed grape leaves and the spanakopita um, and uh, you know, just all that. There's a, um, there is a Greek Orthodox church that's just down the street from Carnegie Mellon and twice a year they will have a Greek festival. Mm -hmm. And I swear I'm there every day. It's like <laughs> the best food ever. So I, yeah. <laughs> awesome. And, and what's the one habit you make sure that you do every day? Um, I make lists. I'm a list person. <laughs> You're a planner. Yes. How, who knew, right? So yeah, every day I think I can't, um, for whatever reason, it's hardwired in my brain. It, you know, it, it's very cathartic to be able to cross things off of a list. And it makes me feel a little more organized when I create a new list that at least I've prioritized what I'm going to do the next day. So yeah, that's kind of one of my things that I just have to do. Awesome. So if you have any time management challenges, you need to talk to Melanie. Y yes. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So where can our listeners find you? If they want to reach out, social media or anything like sure. that. Sure. So um, I have, um, I'm not a huge social media person. Like I'm, I have a, I have something on Facebook, but I don't think I've looked at it in like three years. Um, it's I'm on LinkedIn. So if there's something that that I've spoken at or if there's an article that I've participated in, I'll, I'll try to put it on LinkedIn. So I'm probably more active on LinkedIn than anything else. Awesome. And yeah. that's another great point. So what types of published materials do you mm -hmm. have? So I've spoken at other conferences in the past. Um, and I also recently participated in an interview that Cynthia Vitters from Deloitte, um, she leads up their ERM practice, mainly within the federal agency side. Um, but she and I have partnered on a couple of things this year speaking um, at events, um, focusing on ERM, and also um, in an article that she published a few weeks ago for Risk Management Magazine. And I have an article coming out uh, in the November issue of the DRJ uh, Magazine um, about Ask the Executive. So I um, contributed to that as well. Love it. Awesome. Well, there you have it. Thanks for tuning in to Business Resilience Decoded with the Disaster Recovery Journal and Aspalis Advisors. Subscribe, share, download, and look out for future episodes. Business Resilience Decoded is produced and edited by John Seals. For more information, visit drj.com slash decoded and asfalisadvisors.com slash decoded. Write to us on Twitter at drdecoded. decoded.